0: Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. I am your host today, Erica, and joining me in the studio is Doug and Tiffany. And Um, Dayton in the background. Hello. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about anxiety and some of the new research that's coming out to help with people that are suffering from anxiety. And um, just a little background, I mean, we all have fight or flight response and our ancestors were no different. Um, We just now in this day and age, um, anxiety disorders are rising at an alarming rate. And it wasn't even until the 1980s that anxiety disorders were even diagnosed. And um, for those who've experienced anxiety, I'm sure you're well aware of the feelings of nervousness, restlessness, increased heart rate, hyperventilation, sweating, trembling, difficulty concentrating, Um, uncontrolled worry, and it can really impact every aspect of your life. Um, A lot of times it's been explained as more of a physical sensation than a mental sensation. So almost like the difference between excessive worrying and then actual body sensations of anxiety. Um, Anxiety disorders are one of the most common mental illnesses in the United States, uh, affecting about 40 million people over the age of 18, and I'm not sure about uh, other parts of the world, but it does seem to be growing rapidly, and people are really looking for a way to deal with it, a way to not have it control their everyday life. And, you know, there's a lot of different breakdowns, and maybe Tiffany, you want to add to this, but you know, there's a lot of different types of anxiety disorders that are now being diagnosed. And one, it's probably the most common is that generalized anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into panic disorder, social anxieties, phobias, um, obsessive compulsive disorders, even post-traumatic stress disorder.
1: My understanding from uh, researching this topic on the use of psychedelics for certain disorders is it seems to be most effective with people who have disorders in which they kind of turn in on themselves like the depression the anxieties versus other types of disorders how shall I say like more like personality disorders or disruptive mm disorders where they're kind of turned out against everyone else, like you you, you have, um, I guess maybe the effect to other people can still be the same, like you can be so depressed and so anxious, and you're so self-centered about your own suffering and what you're going through, is that you kind of um, push other people away and your relationships suffer, and then you have the uh, disorders where people turn out against other people and uh, they kind of like lash out or have anger issues and make other people miserable. I mean, in both instances, you can still make other people miserable, but I think that the disorders in which you turn inward toward yourself have better outcomes with psychedelics and with more traditional therapies than otherwise.
2: Yeah. That would pr- that would make sense to me. Like uh, somebody yeah. who's like a, a narcissist or has some kind of antisocial personality disorder, I think, um, mm-hmm. It makes sense that, well, I mean, it, it would make sense to me that it's kind of like they, like you said, it's more of an external manifestation. And, mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, you know, this might be getting too deep for this show. But I mean, it seems that sometimes with those types of personality disorders, there's not really anything there as far as mm-hmm. like a conscience or something like that. Like there's, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's no... They think that they're fine,
1: for one. Right,
2: yeah. and It's always
1: everybody else, not them.
2: Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, as far as my understanding of psychedelics go, it's kind of like it brings on a new sort of awareness. And if somebody is so deeply embedded in narcissism that they don't really have an awareness, like an empathy component Mm -hmm. to them, then I can't see how the psychedelics would necessarily like work on that. It's almost like there's nothing there to work with.
0: Hmm. hmm well kind of why we decided to do this show was uh doug found this article <laughs> <laughs> and the name of the article is snorting powdered toad secretion just once is linked to feeling happier in a month and uh we started to look through it and then lo and behold uh what is it cbs carried a 60 minute interview with um Michael Pollan, uh, a writer, journalist, writer, um, who's written several books on food and eating and whatnot, and uh, they did a whole segment on it. And this was on the 13th of October, so this is pretty current uh, yeah. research and, and discussion that's happening. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I think we uh, there's something there's something in the air on this because we decided to do the show, and then. Uh, then all of a sudden, CBS scooped us. Uh, it's like, oh, uh, Anderson Cooper uh, did the show before us. Damn it. Now we're going to look like we're copying him.
1: It's the information field. We're both yeah. tapping into it around the same time.
2: Well, it is getting well, my a question lot of. Is- I was sorry. I was just going to say it is. it does seem like it is getting a lot more publicity lately I think maybe this that mm. 60 minute special is probably um, one of the more mainstream ones but it seems like there's been a lot of um, talk about this recently like a lot of people revisiting psychedelics um, you mm. know it's kind of like the the stigma is starting to kind of um, fade a little bit like no people aren't just thinking about it as like you know what the hippies did as like party drugs it's kind of like wait a minute we've just made these things like with a broad stroke, made these things all illegal when there might actually be potential here for healing, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I think part of the resurgence perhaps is all these Silicon Valley geeks starting to experiment with either doing like full doses or micro doses. And then you hear heard a lot about um, Gaber Mate who wrote when the body says, no, he talks about ayahuasca a lot. So mm-hmm. that's when it kind of like pinged on my radar mm-hmm. in the last couple of years.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and then the whole idea that obviously, Oh, sorry. <laughs> my that's my bad sorry <laughs> oh,
2: what happened
0: oh my my computer started talking to me
2: uh, oh, we didn't hear we it. we didn't, <laughs> didn't hear it yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe it was that some of that toad venom that i got working out of this. <laughs> i've seen a few toads around um <laughs> Well, you know, this whole idea of just depression and anxiety disorders and even addiction and alcoholism and PTSD is like these traditional pharmaceuticals aren't working, you Mm. know, the SSRIs and, you know, kind of a little bit of backstory is psychedelics were actually being used legally in the 1950s. Mm. And uh, why they were doing it was they wanted to actually try and induce psychosis to see how people would react and so it was always in controlled studies um but you know it really didn't come out till the 60s when the whole flower power you know tune in drop out tim leary ken kesey all that kind of stuff um Brought attention to it, but it was being researched extensively, and then with the connection to the whole hippie culture and music, um, it kind of got a really bad rap. And then yeah. I think in the '70s is when uh, Nixon outlawed it, right? You know, he um,
1: declared his war on drugs. War on
0: drugs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, which has told done untold damage on society in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, it's kind of like, yeah. I think that like psychedelics seem to have like not to sound really cliched or anything like that, but they definitely do seem to have a consciousness-expanding type quality to them. And I think when it started getting used on mass in the '60s, I think the main thing that had the kind of the authorities start freaking out about it is that people were questioning all the narratives that kind of ruled their lives, and one being mm-hmm. the war, um, the mm-hmm. Vietnam War. And it's kind of like, well, we can't have our society questioning the reason that we're going to war. That's uh, fundamental to our reason for being, for the authorities are thinking this, of course. So that's why they felt that they had to crack down on it and why it ended up getting such a bad rap. Um, so, you know, where the fault lies, it's hard to say. Like, maybe if the the hippies weren't so... Uh, I don't know. Overly enthusiastic <laughs> with their use, maybe um, it wouldn't. It would if they have been a little bit more subtle. Maybe, mm-hmm. um, maybe these things wouldn't have been declared illegal, and they would have been able to continue uh, working on them in scientific settings. But on the same, at the same time, it's kind of like the the authorities were basically freaking out, um, overreacting to the situation. Um, but mostly because they were driven by the war machine more than anything else. At least that's my very simplistic interpretation of what went on. I wasn't there, so I don't know. Yeah.
1: The whole, if not for those pesky hippies defense.
2: Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I do think they were a little bit, you know, especially people like Tim Leary and stuff like that were maybe a little bit irresponsible with the whole thing. Um, But Mm -hmm. then at the same time, they thought, you know, they discovered this new thing and they thought that this was the key to um, enlightening the entire human race. And uh, Mm -hmm. there was nothing but peace and handholding and, you know, dirty hippies in the future. It would usher in the utopia. The age of Aquarius.
1: Yeah. Well, as it stands now, all of these psychedelics are schedule one. Mm. drugs in the United States, meaning that they have no medicinal value. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's what the hippies
2: gave us. (laughs) Fast forward to today. And uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but there was a doctor who's actually, we're going to show a clip from that 60 minutes documentary. um, And the doctor who's featured in that, at least I think he's featured in the clip we show. He might not be actually, but he was the first guy to kind of get permission from the FDA to start studying psilocybin, which is the mm-hmm. psychoactive component of magic mushrooms. And I think that was it was in the early 2000s at some point. He actually got approval to study it for um, you know research purposes for psychological conditions and things like that. And um, it, he kind of seems to have opened the door. Um, and mm-hmm. there's actually more um, legitimate research actually coming out now. Um, a lot of people are actually studying this stuff and kind of, you know, taking a look. And maybe it's just that the time is ripe, because like what Erica was saying before, the, 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 the psychoactive drugs that they're um, peddling for um, any psychological issues from like the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, really are extremely limited. Um, mm-hmm. they see, it seems like they come with more side effects than they do actually help. And um, yeah, I think people are becoming disillusioned with them, and um, that, you know, people who are actually honest about it and aren't just trying to get people hooked on pharmaceuticals are looking for alternatives.
0: Uh, Doug, was that Dr. Hoffman? Could Is have been. That, was that the name? Because they started a, a, the Hef, Hefter Institute and mm-hmm. the M- Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, yeah, uh, a nonprofit, and it. Was um, funded by wealthy donors in the United States and abroad, and so they actually started in the early 1990s looking mm. into it. But it probably wasn't till about 2000 that it started to gain some traction.
2: Right. I think that's when the FDA actually said, "Okay, you guys can study it." <laughs> so nice of them to give permission.
1: Well, I guess up to this point, the trouble with a lot of these studies is that the sample sizes were so small, Mm. and they didn't do the the randomized Mm -hmm. double-blind placebo-controlled studies. So I guess this is a good thing that there's going to be more studies, more studies, but it seems like we hear that a lot, more studies, more studies on this, that, and the other thing. And it seems like they stay in study mode forever, Mm. and they never... (laughs) like, come out and say, okay, it's pretty much definitive. I think from the results they have, even in the small sample sizes and, you know, the studies that we have so far, I think they're pretty definitive as well. I mean, not saying that they shouldn't conduct any more studies, but it seems like people just seem to get stuck in study mode and they don't move forward. It's
2: true. Yeah, one, of the, one um, limitation I read about in one of the studies was they kind of like had these people come, they went through the whole procedure, which was something that was actually established in the 50s um, when they first started studying psychedelics. It's like they would put it on the blindfold, keep them in a quiet room, put on headphones with some nice kind of calming music and just sit there for the entire trip. And, Mm -hmm. um, so they did that with people and the people left and then there was a follow up a month later and everybody who came back, well, not everybody, but something like 80% of the people who came back were reporting these amazing results that they had had less anxiety, um, less other psychological problems, less OCD, all these kinds of things. But the problem was that not everybody came back. So... Mm -hmm it was kind of like they speculated well maybe we're getting a biased result here because people who had a positive um experience came back and those who had like a really negative experience or you know didn't didn't bother coming back so yeah it's it's hard like i, I mean i i think that 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 isn't definitive of like um other studies that have been done i mean i'm sure there have been ones that are are better and more controlled in that respect but i think that Maybe for that reason, more studies do need to be done and maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's kind of like, I, there, I know there's a lot of people out there who are kind of just want, let's just legalize it all and get it back out on the streets and everything like that. But mm-hmm. I think maybe maybe a cautious approach with this. We maybe have learned some lessons from the 60s and uh, maybe we should yeah. be a little bit more cautious with it.
1: I also think that a problem with some of these studies is that the subjects that you draw into the study have an expectation. For one, you have mm-hmm. to have a certain amount of trust. You have to have, well, I guess you, who hasn't heard of psychedelics, but these people who volunteer for the studies, maybe there's a, um, like certain people are more motivated to try certain things. Thrill seekers. Um, Yeah. Thrill seekers. Maybe they do other kinds of drugs. Maybe they're just a curious type of person, or maybe they've read about it or tried it before and have heard of the effects. So they go in with a a bias, Mm -hmm. an expectancy bias. Like if I were to participate in one of these studies, I would go into it expecting that I would have some kind of profound life altering experience. And I'm sure maybe a lot of these other people do that too. Mm -hmm. So that can kind of color the results.
2: Can, not yeah. to say
1: that yeah you shouldn't do them, but still. Well,
2: maybe. What's well,
0: interesting in the videos that we watch, just to add before we play it, like it seemed like a lot of the interviewees, the people that experienced, were like you know older white conservative ladies that would normally not be drawn to something like this. Mm-hmm. But out of maybe some sense of desperation, we're like, mm-hmm. "Why not?" I've tried everything else, and this is something new. Um, why not? What do I have to lose?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe we should play that that clip now, Damien. Okay.
3: And that is my mantra.
4: to this day. It seems so implausible to me that a single experience caused by a molecule, right, ingested in your body could transform your outlook on something as profound as death. That's that's kind of amazing.
5: Author Michael Pollan wrote about the psilocybin studies in a best-selling book called How to Change Your Mind. As part of his research, he tried psilocybin himself with the help of an underground guide. The kind of things that cancer patients were saying, like I, I touched the face of God, you were skeptical about when you hear phrases like that. Yeah.
4: Or love is the most important thing in the universe. When someone tells me that, I was like, yeah, okay. So you don't, you don't go for some of the
5: phrases that no, are No, it
4: makes gives me the willies as a writer. And I really struggle with that because during one of my experiences, I came to the earth-shattering conclusion that love is the most important thing in the universe. But it's, that's Hallmark card stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and yet, while you were on it and afterward... It was profoundly true. And it is profoundly true. Guess what? Um, There's a reason it's on a Hallmark card. There is a reason. And one of the things psychedelics do is they peel away all those essentially protective levels of irony and and cynicism that we we acquire as we get older. And you're back to those kind of, oh, my God, I forgot all about love. (laughs) Pollan said he also experienced what the
5: researchers describe as ego loss or identity loss, the quieting
4: of the constant voice we all have in our heads. I did have this experience of seeing my ego um, burst into a, a little cloud of post-it notes. I know, it sounds crazy. And what are you without an ego? You're, uh, <laughs> you had to be there. <laughs>
5: Researchers believe that sensation of identity loss occurs because psilocybin quiets these two areas of the brain that normally communicate with each other. They're part of a region called the default mode network, and it's especially active when we're thinking
4: about ourselves and our lives. And it's where you connect what happens in your life to the story of who you are.
5: We, we, we all see. develop a story right. over time about over time. what our past was like uh, and yeah, who what we kind are. of
4: person we are, how we react. And that the fact is that interesting things happen when the self goes quiet in the brain, uh, including this rewiring that happens.
5: To see that rewiring, Johns Hopkins scientist Matthew Johnson showed us this representational chart of brain activity. The circle on the left shows normal communication between parts of the brain. On the right, what happens on psilocybin. There's an explosion of connections or crosstalk between areas of the brain that don't normally communicate the difference is just startling right is that why people are having experiences of seeing you know repressed memories or past memories or people who have died or that's what we
1: think and even the perceptual effects sometimes the synesthesia like the the seeing sound
5: people see sound yeah sometimes i don't even know what that means
4: right yeah (laughs) right yeah Yeah. (laughs) maybe the ego is one character among many in your mind And you don't necessarily have to listen to that voice that's chattering at you and criticizing you and telling you what to do. And that's very freeing. It was
5: certainly freeing for Carrie Pappas. though Cancer has now spread to her brain. Her crippling anxiety about death is gone.
0: Yeah, it's amazing.
1: I mean, I feel like death doesn't frighten me. Living doesn't frighten me. I don't frighten me.
5: This frightens me, but- This interview frightens you? (laughs) But death doesn't? (laughs) No. It turns out most of the 51 cancer patients in the Johns Hopkins study experienced significant decreases in depressed mood and anxiety after trying psilocybin. Two-thirds of them rated their psilocybin sessions as among the most meaningful experiences of their lives. For some, it was on par with the birth of their children.
0: To this day, it evolves in me.
5: It's still alive in you. It's
0: still absolutely alive in me.
5: Does it make you happier?
0: Yeah, and and I don't necessarily use the word happy. Comfortable. Hmm. Like, comfortable. I mean, I've suffered from anxiety my whole life. I'm comfortable.
1: That, to me, okay, I can die. I'm comfortable. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. Okay. Huge.
2: Huge. It's huge. (laughs) Huge. That was interesting yeah. i thought it was interesting the talk that michael Pullen talking about the fact that with the use of psychedelics it quiets that default mode network uh-huh. <clears throat> and it's kind of similar to what it's kind of what people refer to as the ego at least i think you know it's, it's hard to yeah. necessarily tie those two specific brain regions but it seems like that's kind of the ego the self-talk that's always going on in your head, the constant narration, the constant um, interpreting uh, of what Mm -hmm. you're seeing and it quiets that area down and lets all these other parts of the brain that don't normally talk together, talk to each other, talk to each other. So Mm -hmm. a lot of that experience, that's where that's coming from. So it's almost like what it's providing is a complete perspective switch, right? And instead of that constant narrative, that's always explaining your life, Um, you kind of get out of that for a second and kind of get a different perspective on things and maybe listen to some parts of your brain that don't normally get much of a voice to your conscious mind. So I can see how that would be kind of perspective switching so that you are suddenly, well, yeah, you just have a different perspective and your anxiety kind of wouldn't have the same weight that it did before. Um, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't place as much importance on the things that you did before, perhaps.
1: Yeah. I think that that would be highly beneficial just from my own experience and working with people who have mental illness. Like one of the things like really depressed or anxious people have is just negative thought loops or negative self-talk, just running through their heads all the time. Mm -hmm. And even like, um, and people who have more psychotic disorders, like, say, for instance, schizophrenia, even though they uh, make sure to say that, you know, you should always use caution and maybe it's not the best thing for schizophrenics to use psychedelics. But in earlier research, they actually did uh, use psychedelics on people who had psychoses. Now, for people who hear voices and things like that, I've talked to people and it's pretty much 90 Ninety nine point nine percent. I probably maybe heard one person who say that the voices that they hear in their heads say positive things. Mm-hmm. It's always something negative. Always, always, always. So if people who are psychotic or are schizophrenic could actually have access to this medicine and in a controlled environment, Maybe it would be beneficial because that's one of the more debilitating symptoms of schizophrenia can you imagine walking around with a negative voice just lambasting in your head 24 hours a day
2: mm. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: well it it seems too that that excessive rumination just Mm -hmm. builds and causes the actual physical sensations of Mm -hmm. anxiety the racing heart you know paranoid thoughts or just being on that endless hamster wheel just trying to get through the day every day and without any relief i mean it ages you, right? I mean, can't people can't sleep, they're exhausted, but they can't fall asleep and it just seems like if you had something that could break that cycle. It's almost like when your computer gets stuck running a program and you just have to shut it down
1: mm-hmm.
0: and restart.
1: So, it's psychedelics are control alt delete of this, <laughs> the spiritual realm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's interesting. Well, one thing
0: that Michael oh. Pollan was talking about, sorry, Doug, to no, go cut ahead. you off, it made me think about that. Is like as far as clinical settings, it seems that mushrooms or psilocybin. Is the active ingredients in psychedelic mushrooms um, is easier to administer in like a clinical setting because the duration of the treatment is only four to six hours, mm-hmm. whereas something like LSD can be ten to sixteen hours. Uh, mm. You know what I mean? And I would imagine with these clinical situations that the dosing is really important too. You know what one a dose for one person may cause a breakthrough whereas other people have much higher tolerance or you know what Paul Stamets has talked about is the hero's dose where they eat a lot of psychedelic mushrooms and mm-hmm. you know part of the whole trip is like completely losing control of reality and being susceptible to whatever comes your way which is not always good I'm sure yeah,
2: yeah. It, it makes me wonder, though. You know, I was watching um, another interview with Michael Pollan, and he was talking about how he thought that the profound experience, the spiritual experience of the trip, is what was the thing that kind of led to the cessation of anxiety or whatever, whatever the case may be, whatever the person was trying to treat. That it's kind of that experience, that switch in perspective and that sort of thing, what is what was actually doing the good on the other Mm -hmm. side of it. You've got a lot of these studies out there that are looking for the specific biochemical reason for it. Um, you know, there was recently uh, a study in rats where they found that the, um, one of the things they thought led for LSD to be, um, beneficial for anxiety was that the, it actually stuck to the receptors and then would stay there. And Mm -hmm. that, um, You know psychoactive medications like pharmaceuticals don't do that they kind of stick to the receptor for however long and then they're gone whereas the LSD seems to be sticky in some way and actually stays on there for a while so they were like okay well maybe that's why and there's all kinds of other things where it's like okay well it increases serotonin or it does this and like they're really looking for the biochemical um, physiological reason that these drugs are working and, you know, I was always kind of like more along the lines of what Michael Pollan says. It's like, no, it's about the experience. It's not the specific chemicals that are swishing around in your brain. Mm-hmm. But then I started hearing about this thing, micro dosing, where people are doing kind of these really small doses of psychedelics. And it's not enough to actually have a trip, quote unquote. It's like you're not actually getting to the point of hallucination or being high. It's like mm-hmm. you take a small amount of LSD, small amount of psilocybin or whatever and it almost is just like taking taking a medicine uh you don't notice anything necessarily but people who are doing this microdosing are reporting like reduction in anxiety, increase in productivity, increase in attention, all these kinds of beneficial things. This is this is one thing that the uh Silicon Valley like biohacker type community are all about. Because it's like, it's not, you're not getting so high that you're not functional, right? You don't have to like Mm -hmm. sit on a couch with a blindfold on for eight hours. You can just kind of take this micro dose and then go about your day. And it's like, okay, well, these people seem to be having this benefit from these tiny doses without having this massive life-changing experience. So maybe Poland is actually wrong about that. I mean, I shouldn't say Poland is wrong because he might have a more varied opinion on this than I'm giving him credit for. But what my understanding, you know, that opinion. So I do, I do kind of wonder about it. Is it just something biochemical, or is there something more to it?
0: Mm-hmm. I know in the microdosing. their goal is really not to hallucinate, which is ultimately what larger doses do, but to boost work performance and creativity. And it's kind of like that whole idea of tapping into the flow, right? Like that ability to focus and maintain your work, but not be distracted by, you know, all those ruminating thoughts or your deadlines or kind of blast open the box that we all create for ourselves to make it through the workday, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the thing about a lot of this microdosing is I don't know if there's any consensus on what a microdose of any of these substances are uh, or how one can properly gauge it or when one person says they're microdosing and another person says that they're microdosing, they're not using the same dose. So that's right. one of the things, but I guess whatever a microdose is, it's something that you don't get high from, you don't have any hallucinogenic effects, but you still feel different than your usual self. You feel more some focused
2: benefit in some way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Creative. Right. I think that, um, a lot of the, the microdosing came from, well, the information that people have on it, there's a book called the psychedelic explorers guide, by James Fadiman and it's on Amazon. I think I put it on my wish list so I can <laughs> look at what he's talking about, but you know, people got a lot of information on microdosing from that and I've read a few studies on it, but it seems like um, you know, everybody has pretty much good results mm-hmm. with microdosing whatever it is they're choosing, LSD or psilocybin.
6: Yeah.
0: Yeah, in one of our articles uh, we read it was called Microdosing, the Newest Trend in Recreational Drug Use. Um, a woman is talking about using 10 micrograms of LSD, which is about one-tenth of a full more kaleidoscopic hit, they called it, and it just improves her relationships and enhances her work. So mm-hmm. you were talking about dosage. But again, it's really back to that idea, you know, the dose makes the poison. Maybe she is has those results from that, you know, 10 micrograms where someone else with a different constitution and different history of mental health might have a more radical experience or nothing at all.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I honestly... Wonder about it because with the microdosing, I mean, unfortunately, I don't know a lot about it I haven't read that guy's book and I've only just kind of read a couple of articles on it and some and stuff I don't know like it seems like the people who actually do The macro dose I guess you would call it like a, a like actually go on a trip um, In these controlled settings the improvements that they're having from it are long-lasting It's like they kind mm-hmm. of do that one trip or I think in some situations they did a total of three and they're having, like, you know, effects for years. Whereas it sounds to me like the microdosing thing maybe is something that has to be done more consistently. Um, like over, you know, I, I just wonder if the benefits only last kind of a, a limited amount of time because they're not having mm-hmm. that massively profound kind of experience.
1: Yeah, I think one of the studies I read It's that the good effects are when the people are dosing, but there's limited effects on the days when they don't dose. Right. I think that kind of like typical American, I want it now fashion, microdosing kind of seems like that to me. Like, you know, people are so used to taking a pill for this or a pill for that. Like maybe they take vitamins or supplements or something every day if they don't take pharmaceutical drugs. So they're treating it like that. like that, like I don't have a whole nine hours to profoundly change my life. I need to just do it little by little. Yeah. I mean, if I were to go the route of taking a psychedelic, I would want the most bang for my bun- my money. I mean, you're already going through all of this trouble to procure it, whether you're, you know buying it illegally, I mean, it's illegal, or if you're getting one of those grow kits, or if you're going out in the forest looking for a psilocybin mushrooms or something. Don't do that. You're going through a lot of trouble to get this stuff. It seems like you'd be willing to take the time, set aside your whole day, <laughs> and do what needs to be done if you think you really have an issue that's strong that you need to use psychedelics to address it. Yeah. I don't know if maybe we can get into later, like, some alternatives to using psychedelics, because not everybody's going to do it. No.
2: Well, I think part of the issue is, um, I mean, there's the whole thing about the bad trip, right? Yeah. And earlier on in the segment of, of that 60 Minutes, when they were talking to this woman who said that it was the most terrible, terrifying, awful experience of her life. Um, and, I mean, that's not unheard of, right? I don't think it's the majority by any means, but you, the experience isn't necessarily going to be a good one. Um, yeah. N- despite the fact that she had a really terrible time, it was effective for her. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that, that that's what they've said, um, that the whether or not you have a good time or a bad time doesn't seem to really matter. It's like the experience itself is um profound enough to to have this kind of effect um, that being said though I think that maybe some people probably don't want to do the whole the whole let's take a heroic dose and uh, mm-hmm. block block off my weekend and that's that's what I'm going to do I have a have a schedule in my life changing experience um <laughs> maybe some people are like you know what that sounds terrifying to me um yeah. I don't think I want to do that so yeah maybe microdosing is the way to go
0: yeah but they're still having to go through nefarious sketchy means to procure LSD yeah. exactly. <laughs> or, or find That's a so guide sad. even and and yeah. really like The quality, I mean, getting into all of that, you know what I mean, is is because uh, mushrooms are one thing, but LSD is is created in a lab, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's been stories in the past of, you know, all kinds of other additives that can cause a very bad reaction. I mean, for those who've never watched the Woodstock documentary, there was ongoing... yeah, look out for the brown acid. The brown you know what acid, I mean. Yeah.
1: yeah, didn't they have like uh, come down stations or something? Like oh, yeah. if somebody's having a bad trip.
0: It's called rock medicine, and actually is still in use today for for people. It's all volunteer for people who have done too much drugs. It's all hmm. volunteer doctors that help. You know, so there is there is that aspect to it as well. And you know, as we've talked about many times on this show. With the FDA be getting involved with the mushroom research, is that going to be better or worse? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I kind of think that they they really want to find, like Doug was saying, those chemicals so they can synthesize them and create some sort of pill mm-hmm. to market. that yeah, has, synthetic. Yeah, that they can say, well, you know, you don't have to eat the mushrooms and have the crazy trip, but you'll get all yeah. the benefits of said, you know, yeah. which will never happen, as we know, because it's a, it's a plant, it's, it's synergistic, there's a lot of things that they'll never be able to find.
2: Well, it makes me wonder if maybe that's why Michael Pollan taking the line that um, it's about the experience more than it is about the pharmacological effect. Like he's basically mm-hmm. saying, you have to have that profound experience to, um, to benefit Um, So that, you know, then pharmaceuticals can't turn around and, um, you know, create a pill that doesn't give you any kind of uh, um, profound effect. It's just biochemistry. That's it. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm putting a lot of words into Michael Pollan's mouth on this show. Um, Hopefully he won't sue me for it. But uh, anyway, I was just speculating.
1: (laughs) Well, I, for one, if I ever did... uh kind of get up the gumption and even try anything psychedelic I wouldn't want to try LSD because it is made in the lab I would prefer to just take my chances with a mushroom or something <laughs> because Over it's natural toad. as they say <laughs> no the I'll stay away from the toads <laughs> I'll try the toad
2: I watched <laughs> like who that.
1: even how they even come across that that somebody like, like eats a toad and get high maybe. off of it and say oh wow Let's That's go find more toads.
5: Well, it's kind
0: of funny because they were talking about it being from Colorado River area, right? And it's a Inclis alivarius. And in the article, they talk about it. It's 5-MEO-DMT. So it's toad, synthetic, plant-derived. Um, so so for those, our listeners, like DMTs, isn't that what's in ayahuasca, too, the plant? Hmm and um yeah how they did somebody stumble and fall and lick the toad and then all of a sudden have a reaction and then it ended up in the lab to you know i don't know how they came about it it
1: was some boy torturing his little sister
2: mm, maybe stuck <laughs> in her mouth Yep. Yeah. well unlike you tiff i think i would try the toad actually it sounds uh i've always been very curious about dmt and um that one it's very short acting I, w- I watched mm-hmm. a thing where Mike Tyson was, apparently Mike Tyson did it and he like has had you know what's the born again type experience and um, he was saying it only lasts five five minutes but it, it seems like it's going on for hours and I was like well that sounds like a good bang for the buck kind of thing you know just on your lunch break or something go out have some mm. smoke some toad venom and then uh, go back to work
1: did it stop him from biting off people's ears <laughs>
2: I don't think he's done it since, so it must have.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... The- but I wonder also, um, just kind of with the... Not necessarily with the expectancy bias, but just like, if you were to take a psychedelic, like how much does your... Not just your expectations, but your your knowledge base, uh, what your maybe religious or spiritual thoughts are, but especially you know how smart you are or what you know, would that affect what kind of experience that you have? I guess it would have to because everybody's experience would be different based on you know the type of person that they are. But that's just one of the things I'm curious about. Not necessarily like how much you know about psychedelics, but just how much you know about the world and mm. psychology and, you know, the cosmos or whatever.
2: Yeah. I don't know if anybody can answer that question. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's a tough one. Like I I imagine that, you know, the the individual's experience of life would color their experience of mm-hmm. a hallucinogenic experience. I guess I don't to be honest I don't know. Like I guess it, this really comes down to like what is this psychedelic experience, right? Is it a spiritual experience? Is it is it something that's confined to the brain? Um mm-hmm. and if so, it's like yeah, then of course, I guess your own biases and knowledge would affect things, but if it's, you know, something an experience of something higher maybe it's objective i don't know yeah. I, have, I have no idea
1: well i've also heard of these uh what do they call them psychonauts the people who try psychedelics mm-hmm. like trying psychedelics in groups of people all doing psychedelics together i mean of course that's what the hippies did or like couples using it mm-hmm. and having sex like I've heard some people on YouTube videos doing that. And I'm like, is that kind of um, using it in a way that you shouldn't? Or I don't know. It just becomes like all these questions come up about like the most proper setting, the most proper way to actually
2: well, use a site. I guess it depends on what, what the person's goals are, right? I mean, yeah. th- the fact is these things can be used as party drugs, right? Like they mm-hmm. have been um, excessively, right? Like there, there's all kinds of, you know, the hippies, the ravers, I'm sure it was done at like discos in the seventies and all that kind of stuff. Like people, you know, teenagers in their parents' basement, like these things can certainly be used as just for thrill seeking, right? Like just kind mm-hmm. of like, let's, let's, uh, get blitzed out of our minds and do crazy things. Um, if someone, wants to use them therapeutically though I think that's a that's a different animal like that's not yeah. the same the same kind of thing, so what they should do and shouldn't do I guess it really depends on what their their goal is and I mean the fact of the matter is they're illegal too right and we should we should probably state that we're not actually condoning doing anything illegal um, if you happen to be in a place where these things are illegal, which I believe is probably the majority of the world. So, except for Portugal. <laughs> yeah. And Amsterdam too, I guess. But um, you know, so we're we're certainly not advocating doing anything illegal. Um, but just for the sake of argument, I think that um, you know, trying to trying to do something like if you're actually trying to um treat yourself in some way like trying to you have a goal of overcoming anxiety or ocd or post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever the case may be then there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it and and you know going out and partying um on acid is probably not going to have therapeutic benefits i would guess anyway
0: (laughs) it's taking a big
2: risk And I think
0: that's why they're doing these controlled environments like, uh, Michael Pollan talked about with, you know, you're in a room with a therapist. A lot of them have like weeks or even a year of psychotherapy beforehand. I found it was interesting that they wear the, uh, eye protection and that they listen to music. So you're not getting all the visual stimulation. It's much more in internal in your brain. Like, um, You know, as opposed to going to a rave or a party where you're getting all that stimulus in Mm -hmm. your eyes and that there's a kind of a person there guiding you through it. And, you know, if we look back at like shamans and the use of ayahuasca, these are all very, there's a very structured approach to taking people into these Realms, these Mm. unknown frontiers of the mind. And of course, there's going to be that person that will have a bad experience. And, you know, I can say personally, I've known people who've done psychedelics and have never been the same afterwards, you know. And it was scary to experience somebody who decided to party and never came back to the person that they were before. So there's, with anything, there's, Definite caveats, but I think in these controlled studies, and what Michael Pollan is trying to do is offer that idea that this can work for certain people if mm-hmm. you know if the setting is is such that it doesn't cause them to go off the deep end.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I've heard some of these psychonauts who say, no, no, even that's too much. You know, if you want to do psychedelics, you need to be somewhere off by yourself and just face whatever comes up, man. Mm.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of what they're doing, even even with the guide and stuff like that. I mean, they've got yeah. the, the kind of the, the face mask on, they've got the the headphones on. And although there is somebody present, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know... When you're going through an experience like that, you're really facing it alone. Like, you know, you're you're facing whatever mm-hmm. comes up on your own. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he would, Michael Pollan was calling it what complete depersonalization de- or, or mm-hmm. ego dissolution. And, and so back to kind of the, the idea mm-hmm. of anxiety as our show. Like if you could get out of their mindset that keeps you in this place where you're afraid of everything or you have, you can't function, then maybe something like that breaks those barriers. Um, and you realize that you're more of a human being than a human doing, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of it is probably just everyday life. I mean, what we're exposed to and the stresses and, you know, all the media and social stuff, you know what I mean? Like people just become so entrenched in this groove and maybe this breaks that groove. Maybe it, it, It. you know, it's a control yeah. all reset, delete.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think we talk on this show all the time about how absolutely insane the world has gotten. And for anybody who is, like you're saying, very entrenched in that, very kind of in that mindset, has completely the wrong set of values and is thinking they should be doing something that really is just so like the antithesis of what human beings kind of are on this planet to do. I can see how having, you know, this kind of profound psychedelic experience would shake you out of that, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, that could be a painful kind of process, you know, it would, it would certainly not be, you know, just kind of like waking up all at once, like it would be terrifying.
1: Yeah. Well, I wonder, you know, all the studies I've read and articles and that I've read about it, they say that these psychedelic drugs are not addictive. Mm-hmm. But some people do use them, you know, serially, or maybe they'll use them like once a month or once a year or whatever. I wonder how the experiences differ over time. Mm. Like your your last trip versus your first trip. Mm. What would be the difference? And also if the effects are as long lasting as they say, what would be the point of doing it more than once?
2: (laughs) Understandable. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I know there was one article that we read for the show, and unfortunately I don't remember which one it was, but it was talking about a woman who was um, a lawyer. I think she was in the San Francisco area and she was, you know, had... She was suicidal, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, I don't really remember the details and what specific disorder she had, but she was suicidal. And um, she had turned to microdosing as kind of a last resort um, and found it profoundly beneficial. And she was doing it regularly. And apparently she had got um, her, you know, drugs from an illegal source, obviously. And ended up kind of finishing off what she had and looked to get more. And it it turned out that her source had kind of dried up. And she said that, okay, well, I'm not going to do it then. Um, She was Mm -hmm. no longer suicidal or anything like that. Um, And at the time of this article, I'm not sure how long after her last dose it was, but it seemed like she was continuing on okay without doing it. And she said she she Mm -hmm. didn't plan on doing it anymore unless she became... You know brutally depressed and suicidal again um so i would think that that's kind of like a a healthy attitude to have it's kind of like you use the medicine and you don't you don't do yeah. it again until you you know the effects wear off or something like that and that might be never mm-hmm. um
6: it's uh this person right
2: yeah that is her it's a very interesting article But yeah, I think um, that, again, probably gets into the difference between somebody who's partying on it, who maybe, mm-hmm. you know, is doing it kind of on the weekends, because it's fun to get together with your buddies and watch cartoons on acid versus <laughs> like somebody who's actually doing something therapeutic. And, you know, these people who are doing it therapeutically, it's like, you know, so yeah, some of them are saying I did it once and I don't have to do it again. I'm good. And, you know, yeah. others maybe do it a couple more times or something like that. But um, I think that... Just to be sure. <laughs> well, I think that in a, in a lot of cases, it's such a profound experience that you don't necessarily want to repeat it. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, especially since it's not always pleasant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we need to mention just like how effective it's been with treating other drug addictions mm-hmm. or alcoholism. I think if that's the only thing that it did, then the benefit to society, I mean, that's worth the price of admission in my Absolutely. my book. I think one of the shows we did most recently, we were talking about how alcohol was voted as the worst drug Mm -hmm. on the planet because of all of the damage that it causes not just Mm -hmm. to people's health but to people's lives not just the alcoholic but everybody in their life and so people are having like great success using psychedelics to cure alcoholism or other like street drug use
2: Mm -hmm. cocaine addiction
1: yeah
0: heroin
2: which is incredible actually like it I imagine you know if you can use it for heroin it might be usable for opioids as well maybe this yeah. is one of the keys to actually you know taking on that opioid epidemic
1: Well I think that's why Tim Ferriss uh, I think he wrote that book was it The 4-Hour Body or The 5-Hour Body or The
2: 4 he's, his first one was The 4-Hour Workweek and then okay. he came out with a series of other ones 4-Hour Body 4-Hour something else
1: Yeah, but he's heavily invested in uh, studying psychedelics and their use. I think one of the primary factors is because he said that he had mental illness in his family and one of his close friends died of a fentanyl overdose. Mm -hmm. So he really wants to see a lot of this psychedelic research. Get moving so he's you know talked to a lot of his rich friends and got them to invest he invested a few million of his own money into it and so now they have uh, uh, a clinic at the Johns Hopkins Johns Hopkins yeah Yeah.
2: which is like a major you know that's a big name Johns Hopkins like yeah Yeah. so the fact that they're they're doing it that lends a lot of credibility to this this thing too Mm mm-hmm
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see how it progresses over time and how, you know, the regulatory bodies deal with it and what type of studies come out and the different, Mm -hmm. you know, lengths of time or like you were saying earlier in the show, Doug, about the placebo versus the people not returning if they had a bad trip and whatnot. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm always suspicious when... The authorities or the government or mainstream medicine kind of gets behind Uh like a natural medicine. Mm -hmm. It always makes me nervous, like they're going to put their filthy mitts all over it and ruin it Mm -hmm. or kind of alter it in some way or secreted away so the you know your average joe won't have access to it i think maybe one of the worst things that could come of this is that it still remains as a schedule one drug
2: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well hopefully tim ferris and michael poland and any other celebrity people out there will will prevent that from happening
0: yeah yeah, maybe that's why they
2: ran a sixty-minute special on it. Could be. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if uh, Anderson Cooper, what his uh, perspective on the thing is.
1: Yeah. So would this be a good time to talk about some alternatives to psychedelics? Some things that can. <laughs> I mean, this is going to be hard to get, and it is illegal. But things that can, you know, possibly mimic the effects like uh has anyone ever tried sensory deprivation tank
2: no i've no. never tried it
1: no i haven't either but i always wondered, like if you're removing all the stimulus from coming into your organism what that effect is like it seems like psychedelics are kind of well maybe if you did a psychedelic in a dark room no noise no music maybe it will kind of be the same thing who knows but I, don't I, think, know. the I think the thing about um, sensory deprivation tanks is like you were saying how LSD is kind of sticky and it hangs around in your molecules mm. for a while like you can't get that from a sensory deprivation tank <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I wonder not. if the effects would be long lasting or not
6: I, I tried one of those float spa tanks. oh yeah and yeah and did you trip no, I, <laughs> it feels like you're floating in salty water. <laughs> um, they let you play music, too. So I, I tried to, I was curious to see if I would trip out. And mm. so I sat there for about 20 minutes, just floating in there. And, yeah, and you've I, heard
1: of people tripping out in those things. That's yeah, it it's wondered.
6: weird. I, and then I just got kind of bored. I'm like, I'm going to put some music on. So I had some Pink Floyd. Put on some Pink Floyd because that's trippy music, and uh, it was nice. Though it was a nice, very relaxing, kind of meditative experience, but I wouldn't say it was anything close to a psychedelic kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not for me, anyway.
2: Well, they say you can reach those states with like meditation and things like that too, but I can't say that I ever have. You know, I've meditated quite a bit over the course of my life, and. I have never had anything that I would call some kind of profound life changing experience with it. Maybe I'm doing Mm -hmm. it wrong. I don't know. Yeah.
1: I've got to the point where I got really, really into it and very relaxed and I would have like physical, like jerky Mm motions whilst I was meditating, but that's about as weird as it got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I did feel like changes. I felt like much more connected and empathetic Hmm. with other people Mm -hmm. so that's one of the effects that they say that psychedelics give you so if you get into some hardcore meditating and that's really what your goal is i mean perhaps it you know you can't get any mushrooms you just have have to to put in the work yourself
2: yeah
0: And it does take commitment and discipline to practice it. I mean, you know, try sitting still for five minutes. It's like one of the hardest things ever. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I mean, the the breathing, the stimulating, the vagus nerve, the parasympathetic nervous system. I mean, um, you know, psychedelics is just kind of a really quick way to do that. and, And that doesn't require a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the yogis and meditators say that, you know, you can reach those states with meditation. hmm Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And as far as uh, ways to decrease anxiety, I mean, we've talked to the cows come home about diet. hmm and- Getting rid of gluten and getting rid of dairy or trying all meat or, you know.
0: No sugar, eliminating caffeine or things Mm. that you know that are going to send your body into that anxious, nervous response.
2: Yeah. There's quite a bit of stuff out there now about the gut-brain connection too. Mm -hmm. Um, Having the right kind of gut bacteria seems to have a profound effect on... Your mental state so I think that um, yeah looking into into that's um, that sort of thing whether it be just taking probiotics or adjusting the diet and um, you know maybe experimenting with some fermented foods or things like that just to get the yeah. the good the good bacteria going on in the gut getting rid of the bad overgrowth uh, that mm-hmm. seems to have a profound effect on on people's mental state.
0: And apparently, keeping a jasmine plant in your room reduces hmm. anxiety and panic
6: attack.
0: <laughs> uh, no, that's good. Uh, jasmine, jasmine fragrance boosts the effects of GABA uh, on your nerve cells and um, relieves anxiety. Encourages rest, and you know we could do a whole show on like the your senses. This, you know, essential oils and mm-hmm. being able to um, calm the brain. Through things like jasmine, so put it says uh, in this article, we keeping a jasmine plant in your room reduces anxiety and panic attacks and depression. it says um, it boosts uh, happiness, regulates hormones, improves sleep, balances hormones, treats hot flashes, increases libido. I feel, I feel like that's kind of reaching, but <laughs> 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 Maybe for every housewarming gift now, I just buy someone a jasmine Jasmine (laughs) plant. Yeah,
2: there you go. This does everything.
0: (laughs) But I think having kind of like we've said so many times on the show, like a toolkit of things that people can do before they go into the deep realm of, you know, psychedelics to try and and deal with anxiety issues and Mm -hmm. ruminating thoughts and... um,
2: and I mean, never underestimate the value of therapy either. Uh, certainly yeah. if somebody's, you know, dealing with a like severe anxiety, um, I think that um, having somebody to talk to, uh, somebody with some experience is probably a very good way to go. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, even if, if it's not so severe that you necessarily need to go to, to therapy, you know, look into some, you know, self-help books kind of get like a bad rap, but I think um, there are a lot of things out there, like a lot of books out there that actually do um, offer a switch in perspective and things that you can try. Um, looking into like Stoic, the Stoics, I think they have a very good perspective on um, anxiety or happiness versus unhappiness. Um, those sorts of things. I think that, um, mm-hmm. that reading that kind of stuff, you know, obviously it's not for everybody. Not everybody's going to vibe with it. But I think that they, they offer a pretty amazing perspective on things, on a good way to kind of approach life. Definitely.
0: Well, if we have nothing else. Yeah. We do have a pet health segment today. Mm. And... Um, Remind me again of the name of the panel segment.
2: Extreme Animal Births? Yes,
6: Extreme Animal Births. And a cute video at the end.
0: Okay. (laughs) Alright. Let him roll, Damien.
3: And welcome to the pet health segment of the Objective Health Program. This time I'm going to share with you facts about various animals giving birth. Believe me, some of them go through a very rough process. So listen up and stay until the end to watch a cute video. Have an awesome time, everyone. Bye-bye. Imagine giving birth to a 24-pound baby. That's three times the size of an average human newborn. Ouch. But for kiwi birds, giant chicks are the norm. Females lay a single egg up to 20% of their body weight. Yet, when you check out other extreme births in the animal kingdom, the kiwi can consider itself lucky. Shingleback lizards also have a tough pregnancy. These reptiles usually have one to two babies at a time, which doesn't sound so bad. Until you realize that combined, the babies make up a third of the mother's body weight. That's like a human giving birth to a seven-year-old. But a baby doesn't need to be big to be difficult. Take the porcupine. Those sharp spines protect it from predators but they're sometimes not so fun for mom. You see, baby porcupines, called porcupets, aren't hairless like most rodent newborns. These guys are born fully quilled. Normally, this isn't a problem for mom, since the quills are soft at birth and gradually harden over the next few hours. But complications can arise when the porcupets are facing the wrong direction because their quills can get caught in the birth canal on the way out. Speaking of birth canals, the spotted hyena has an interesting one. Females have phallic-like genitalia. The scientific term for this is pseudopenis. And they give birth out of this pseudopenis, which will sometimes rip apart in the process. It's not only painful, it can be lethal. In fact, about 15% of first-time mothers die giving birth. But believe it or not, a species of velvet spider has it even worse. You know how some animals chew up food for their babies? Well, Stegodiphus lineatus takes this to a whole new level. Right after she lays an egg sac, the mother's tissues start to degrade. Once the spiderlings hatch, she regurgitates her own liquefied insides and the babies chow down. Nine days later, they suck up the last of her fluids and strike out on their own, leaving nothing but an empty husk. Thanks, Mom. But childbirth isn't just dangerous or uncomfortable for mothers. With some animals, the baby has it pretty rough. Take the Tasmanian Devil. The mom gives birth to up to 50 joeys at a time, each the size of a raisin. They have to crawl from the mother's birth canal over her body and into her pouch, where they'll snuggle up for another four months. But there's a catch. Mom has only four nipples in her pouch. So right from birth, the joeys are literally on a mad dash for their lives. And only the strongest four will make it. Talk about sibling rivalry, huh? Overall, one thing's clear. Humans aren't the only ones who have it rough when it comes to giving birth.
1: was that
2: <laughs> I don't know but that was horrifying yeah the extreme animal births I mean what how cruel the is quills. nature oh, the quills man the quills <laughs> and, and ex- exploding pseudo penis oh my god that's horrific <laughs> yeah horrific
1: thank yeah thanks so <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: Well, we appreciate you all joining us for our objective health show today, and uh, we'll try and keep abreast on the research that's coming out with this uh, psychedelic treatment, and uh, we'll see how things unfold. But uh, if you enjoyed this show, please like and subscribe below, and um, we will be here again with another interesting health topic next week. And Bye. thanks Bye. for you Bye. and Damien. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.